Welcome to Transformed by Grace, an in-depth Bible study of God's Word, presented by the Berean Bible Society. Join us each time on this station as Pastor Kevin brings the transforming message of God's grace revealed through the Holy Scriptures. If you travel up I-395 through Washington, D.C. and cross over the Potomac, you'll likely cross the Arlen D. Williams, Jr. Memorial Bridge. Who was Arlen D. Williams, Jr.? On January 13, 1982, he gave hope to five individuals at the cost of his own life. On that cold January day, Air Florida Flight 90 crashed into the icy Potomac. Ice on the wings prevented the plane from a successful takeoff. Almost all of the passengers perished. Five different times, a helicopter dropped a rope to save Williams. Five times, Williams passed the rope to other passengers in worse shape than he was. When the rope was extended to Williams the sixth time, he could not take hold and he succumbed to the frigid waters. His heroism was not rash. Aware that his own strength was fading, He deliberately handed hope to someone else over the space of several minutes. The Lord Jesus Christ made a willing and conscious decision to give his life for us so that we might live. That Christ would be a sacrifice for us and our sins was his destiny from eternity past. Christ willingly came into the world to save sinners by his substitutionary death on the cross. Under grace... We need only to take the lifeline handed to us by His sacrificial payment for sin. Just trusting that Christ died for your sins and rose again, you are saved by God's grace through faith. It's important to note as we look at the cross and prophecy that those living before the cross did not understand the cross as we understand the cross. We have the benefit of living after the cross and through the completed revelation of God's Word, and especially the revelation given to the Apostle Paul, we can clearly see the cross and all that was accomplished there. It helps us also to clearly see the foreshadows of the cross in the past under prophecy. But for those living prior to the cross and prior to this dispensation of grace, they did not understand That God's Son would come to the earth from heaven, take on flesh, die the death of the cross in payment for their sins, and then rise from the dead three days later. Even the prophets who wrote of the sufferings of the Messiah did not understand it when they were writing it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. 1 Peter 1, 10-11 reads, Of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. The prophets did not know or understand what manner of time or even what the sufferings of Christ meant when they prophesied it. When you go into the time period of the Gospels, you clearly see that they did not understand the cross. Christ repeatedly told his disciples that he would be delivered to the Gentiles and that he would die and that he would rise again the third day. 
Luke 18, 31-34 records an instance of this. Then he, that is the Lord, took unto him the twelve, and said unto them, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man shall be accomplished. For he shall be delivered unto the Gentiles, and shall be mocked, and spitefully entreated, and spitted on. And they shall scourge him, and put him to death, and the third day he shall rise again. And the next verse is, And they understood none of these things. And this saying was hid from them. Neither knew they the things which were spoken. Under prophecy in the law, those living at that time did not place their faith in Christ that He died for them and rose again to be saved from their sins like we do today under grace. Now they were saved on the basis of the shed blood of Christ at the cross, but not by their faith in the shed blood of Christ. They were saved just simply by believing what God required them to believe to be saved under the dispensation in which they lived. For example, when God revealed and commanded them to keep the law and bring an animal sacrifice as atonement for their sins, when a person did that by faith, they were saved. They just did what God required by faith, and they were saved, having absolutely no idea that those animal sacrifices foreshadowed the cross of Christ, which we now understand. Later, under the prophetic program, when John the Baptist came on the scene, he he began preaching the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. They were required to be water baptized to have the forgiveness of sins in addition to keeping the law. They were also required to trust in Christ's name to be saved that Jesus of Nazareth was Israel's Messiah and the very Son of God. Those who responded to these revelations from God about salvation and who did them by faith were saved. The merits of the cross were then imputed to them because Christ was going to go and die on the cross. The shed blood of Christ was the basis for how and why God forgave anyone in all history of all their, of their sins and gave them His righteousness. But under prophecy, they did not place their faith in the cross like we do today under grace. Exodus 17 verses 1 through 3 read, And all the congregation of the children of Israel journeyed from the wilderness of sin after their journeys according to the commandment of the Lord and pitched in Rephidim. And there was no water for the people to drink. Wherefore the people did chide with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said unto them, Why chide ye with me? Wherefore do ye tempt the Lord? And the people thirsted there for water, and the people murmured against Moses, and said, Wherefore is this, that thou hast brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our cattle with thirst? In Exodus 17, we are jumping into the middle of Israel's journey from Egypt to Mount Sinai, where Moses received the law. As they traveled, the Lord knew that the children of Israel needed His direction and provision in the wilderness. Thus God led them by day in a pillar of cloud and by night in a pillar of fire. Previous to Exodus 17, the Lord had led them into the wilderness of Shur to a place called Marah, where there wasn't any drinkable water. But God miraculously provided for His people by making the bitter waters sweet. 
Next, the Lord led them into the wilderness of sin, where the Israelites complained about a lack of food. But God miraculously provided for His people again and gave them an abundance of quail and also bread from heaven, or manna. Following this, we find them here being led and having journeyed from the wilderness of sin to Rephidim, where they had pitched camp. Here, once again, there was no water for the people to drink, and the children of Israel were not happy about it, and they'd tell Moses to give them water to drink. God had led them into this place, and he knew there was no water there. But instead of trusting the Lord, instead of remembering how he had provided for them before, the people blamed Moses and chided him and murmured against him for bringing them to another waterless site. They accused Moses of bringing them out of Egypt just to kill them and with thirst in the wilderness. Instead of crying out to God for help, they murmured and they complained to Moses. A certain monastery enforced a vow of silence. Each monk could utter only two words every five years. And those two words had to be spoken in front of the head of the monastery. One of the monks, when given his first opportunity to speak, said, Bad food. Five years later, his two words were, Hard bed. When given his third opportunity to speak five years later, he said, I quit. And the head of the monastery responded, Well, you might as well quit. All you've done since you got here is complain. All Israel was doing was complaining since they left Egypt. It's true that they were thirsty, but in their spirit of murmuring and contention, Moses tells them that they were actually tempting or testing the Lord. And they're complaining and challenging Moses. Verse 7 here teaches us what they were saying to him. They tempted the Lord saying, Is the Lord among us or not? That verse says. The Lord was the true target of their complaining and anger. They were guilty of unbelief and ingratitude, and they were testing the Lord and His long-suffering. They were doubting and questioning God's ability, God's care, and God's goodness. And it's been rightly said that God had resources, though, that they knew nothing about. Solutions outside their reality. Provisions outside their possibility. They saw the scorched earth. God saw heaven's breadbasket. They saw dry land. God saw a covey of quail behind every bush. They saw problems. God saw provision. Anxiety fades as our memory of God's goodness doesn't. The problem is with passages such as this is that we can't be too hard on the Israelites because each of us at one time or another have done the same thing. Wondering if the Lord really cares, if He's there. We forget His goodness. We doubt His goodness. And we grumble, we murmur in life, and we're guilty of ingratitude. God's response to the Israelites, though, is reassuring. In the past, when the people murmured when they were hungry, God said to Moses, I will give them bread from heaven. No word against the people. Here, when the people grumbled when they were thirsty... God gives them water, no word against the people. God was patient, merciful, and kind. And we can be and should be glad that He is patient and merciful with us in our daily walk too. We'll be returning to the program in just a minute. 
But first, we'd like to take this time to thank you, our partners, for making these programs possible. If you would like to access our library of helpful Bible study tools, go to BereanBibleSociety.org. Acts, Dispensationally Considered, Volume 2, is a hardcover, 472-page commentary written by Pastor Cornelius R. Stapp and covers Acts 1536 through 2831. Far more than an inspired storybook, Acts presents a clear line of teaching and explains why the fulfillment of prophecy was interrupted some 19 centuries ago to make way for the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery. To order your copy, contact the Berean Bible Society for pricing and availability at 262-255-4750 or visit our website at www.bereanbiblesociety.org. To receive our free full-color 32-page monthly magazine, The Berean Searchlight, call 262-255-4750 or subscribe online at www.bereanbiblesociety.org. Thank you again for your generous gifts. And now, back to the teaching with Pastor Kevin. Exodus 17, verses 4 to 6 read, And Moses cried unto the Lord, saying, What shall I do unto this people? They be almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said unto Moses, Go on before the people, and take with thee of the elders of Israel, and thy rod, wherewith thou smotest the river. Take in thine hand, and go. Behold, I will stand before thee there upon the rock in Horeb, and thou shalt smite the rock, and there shall come water out of it, that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. The people had accused Moses of leading them out of Egypt just to die with thirst in the wilderness. And then next, they were so upset that they were about to kill Moses instead. And it's at this point that you would expect Moses to go to the elders in Israel and say, You know, I suddenly feel called to another ministry. I think I'm going to hand in my resignation. You'd expect Moses to do that, but instead Moses goes to the Lord in his discouragement. And that teaches us something that that's something we all should do. He asked the Lord, what shall I do unto this people? They'd be almost ready to stone me. And the Lord gives Moses instruction for what to do. He tells him to stand before the people first. But he wasn't to stand alone. He, was, he told them to take with him the elders of Israel. And then along with the elders, he should take the rod, wherewith thou smotest the river, it says there. And he's talking about smiting the river Nile in the past when he turned it to blood. That rod was a rod of judgment. It brought both death and deliverance. When that rod smote the Nile River and it turned to blood, all the fish died and the river stank and caused Egypt to stink from the smell of death from that river. The Lord told Moses to raise that rod at the Red Sea to divide the Red Sea so that the children of Israel could cross through and be delivered. After Israel crossed, the Lord told Moses to stretch forth his hand so that the waters would return and cover the pursuing Egyptian army. Moses 
Israel's elders, and that rod together symbolized authority and power before the people of Israel. In verse 6, Moses is told by the Lord that he would stand before him upon the rock in Horeb. Now this is the Lord Jesus Christ who is talking to Moses. It is the pre-incarnate Lord that stood upon that rock. And that is significant to remember. Next, the Lord tells Moses that he should smite, not the complaining people, but to smite the rock. And that water for the people to drink would then come out of it for them. This required faith on Moses' part. Because, of course, a rock is the last place a person would go to find water. It said that you can't squeeze blood from a turnip. And you sure don't expect to find water to come out of a rock. But Moses, by faith, did as the Lord instructed. He went before the people. He brought the elders. He brought the rod with him. He went to the rock in Horeb. He took that rod and he smote it. And when he did, water came gushing forth. The water flowed and quenched the thirst of the people. And in this simple picture, you have a beautiful picture of the cross in prophecy. That rock was Christ. 1 Corinthians 10.4 reads, And Israel did all drink the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. In the Old Testament, Jehovah God is referred to as the rock. In 2 Samuel 22.2, David said, The Lord or Jehovah, is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. Psalm 95.1 reads, O come, let us sing unto the Lord, or Jehovah. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. And that's just a couple examples, and there are others in the Old Testament. The rock is Jehovah. 1 Corinthians 10.4 tells us that rock was Christ. So we learn that Christ is Jehovah God. A rock is known for its stability and durability. Christ is our rock. He is the rock of our salvation. He gives us true stability in life. You could say that a rock is the same yesterday, today, and forever. A rock is unchanging. And that, of course, is true of Jesus Christ. Christ stood upon that rock that Moses smote. He symbolically identified himself with that rock. Moses struck the rock on which God the Son stood and identified himself with. An act of violence was required to bring water from the rock. A rod of judgment and deliverance hit that rock. The rock bore that judgment, and life-giving water came gushing forth. The people were guilty. The rock was not. The people deserved the rod to smite them. Instead, the rod, a rod of judgment, smote a substitute. The smitten rock is a picture of the substitutionary death of the Lord Jesus Christ. The smitten rock points to the smitten Christ who paid the penalty for all our sin. At the cross, the rod of God's judgment struck the Savior. He was not guilty. He bore the judgment of guilty sinners. Moses smote the rock. Christ was smitten of God upon the cross of Calvary, where he died for the sins of the world. 
Isaiah 53.4 reads, Surely He hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem Him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. From this rock, Jesus Christ, which was struck and smitten on our behalf at the cross, flows a life-giving stream of living water and life everlasting. In this account, we see a gracious God meeting the needs of an undeserving people. And that is exactly what God did for us at the cross. By His grace, He met the need of the undeserving, which is all of us, because all of us are sinners. God's judgment struck Christ at the cross, and by the cross we find deliverance from all of our sins and everlasting life. It's been said well, Jesus, the rock of ages, was smitten for us, and because Jesus was smitten for us, out of His riven side came forth water. In His earthly ministry to Israel, the Lord taught, But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst, but the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. The Lord tells us through Paul today that having been spiritually baptized into the body of Christ, we have been all made to drink into one spirit. And the Lord gave the following invitation for salvation in Revelation 21.6 to those in the tribulation and the kingdom to come. And He said unto me, It is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. Salvation and life eternal is beautifully portrayed by the Lord as Him giving life-giving water freely to those who are in need and who thirst. Our spiritual need, our spiritual thirst is fully satisfied by Christ. The Bible also teaches that those who do not receive the provision of God's salvation by faith during their lifetimes will thirst eternally. The water of life and a well of water springing up into everlasting life is available to everyone through the Lord Jesus Christ. Faith alone in the cross of Christ and His resurrection is what gives us eternal life in Christ under grace. Just trusting that Christ died for you, for your sins personally, and rose again the third day. Numbers chapter 20 verses 7 to 11 read, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Take the rod. And gather thou the assembly together, thou and Aaron thy brother, and speak ye unto the rock before their eyes. And it shall give forth his water, and thou shalt bring forth to them water out of the rock. So thou shalt give the congregation and their beasts drink. And Moses took the rod from before the Lord as he commanded him. And Moses and Aaron gathered the congregation together before the rock, And he said unto them, Here now, ye rebels, must we fetch you water out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand, and with his rod he smote the rock twice. And the water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank, and their beasts also. Later in Israel's history, during her forty-year wandering in the wilderness, the people were again in need of water to drink, and again they murmured and complained to Moses. This time, when Moses went to the Lord, the Lord told Moses only to speak to the rock. Instead, Moses' anger got the better of him, and out of his frustration with the children of Israel, when he stood before them, he called them rebels, and then he lifted up his hand, and with his rod he smote the rock 
not once, but twice, and water came out abundantly, verse 11 says. Notice, too, that Moses stated right before that, must we fetch you water out of this rock? Moses had absolutely nothing to do with water coming out of that rock. It was all of God, and he spoke out of pride. When the Lord instructed Moses to strike the rock in Exodus 17, it was a picture of Christ, the Redeemer, being stricken at Calvary as our substitute. It illustrated the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ at the cross to bring forth in perpetuity the water of life eternal. Thus, it was a serious spiritual matter when Moses struck the rock a second time rather than believing God and just speaking to it. When Moses struck the rock a second time, he distorted the picture of the truth God created in Exodus 17 of the once-for-all sacrifice of his son. And as a result, the Lord did not permit Moses to enter the promised land. He was only allowed to view the promised land from Nebo before he died. Moses acted in self-will and he misrepresented God to the people. And for that, he was sorely punished. And it's still a very serious matter today to misrepresent God when we share His Word and His message of salvation. It is vitally important to rightly divide the Word of truth to ensure that we hold out God's message for the world today in the pure gospel of salvation by grace through faith alone. The rock was only to be smitten one time by Moses in the wilderness. And the rock was only to be smitten one time at the cross. And that rock, Christ, will never be struck again. The sacrifice at Calvary was never to be repeated and it never needs to be. Christ's sacrifice was all sufficient and perfect. As Hebrews 10 says, By the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. This man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. Everything for us is in Christ, and it flows from his cross. The grace of God in our salvation has power power to save us from all of our sins, and power to transform our lives, if we allow it. We should be continually thankful for the Lord, for Him willingly being smitten for our sins. And gratitude for the grace of God and our salvation can and should lead us to turn our lives completely over to Him and allow Him as he led and guided and directed Israel in the wilderness, allow God to guide and direct us by his word. And when we do that, our lives are going to be transformed by grace. Thank you again for tuning in to Transformed by Grace. We appreciate your prayer support and the financial gifts. The purpose and mission of the Berean Bible Society 
is to help you understand the whole counsel of the Word of God. For more information, visit our website at www.bereanbiblesociety.org or give us a call at 262-255-4750. Or if you prefer, write us at the Berean Bible Society, P.O. Box 756, Germantown, Wisconsin, 53022. Now until next time, may you be transformed by God's grace.